Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and this is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news in business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and coming up on today's show. Have you become curious about the future of physical currency? Well, stay tuned because we've got an insight on the UK government and the Bank of England's plans to design a digital pound. Financial expert Sid Van Kadaram Krishnan from the Financial Times will be joining us to explain all the details. Later in the show, we're also discussing the recent overhaul in Whitehall as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak creates four new government departments. I'll be joined by two experts to debate whether Ireland should be following in the UK's footsteps. And finally, we're taking a look back at the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. Join us as we talk with Jackie Northam, who's Foreign Affairs Correspondent for NPR News, and we'll hear her views on whether the sanctions against Russia have had the desired impact. If you'd like to get in touch with us about any of the topics today or indeed any other issues, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, over in the UK, ministers and officials are worried that cash use is rapidly declining because can you believe it? Just as recently as 2008, physical money accounted for 60% of all transactions and now it makes up for only 15%. So to discuss what the government there are looking at to try and deal with the problems, I'm joined now by Siddhar Van Kadaram Krishnan from the Financial Times. Siddhar, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me and getting my name actually really right. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so Sid, I want to start off by asking you a very simple question. Why would a change in the amount of money that's in circulation prompt a UK government or any government indeed and a Bank of England to look at something like a digital pound? So there's sort of two aspects to this. And one, as, as you rightly point out, is the decline of cash and the move to more contactless payment types, which was um, accelerated in the pandemic. Um, but just more generally, the convenience for a lot of people of using digital uh, ways of paying. Um, and then on the flip side, the, the digital pound idea also reflects uh, broader geopolitical trends. We're seeing CBDCs, central bank digital currencies emerging in countries like China, um, but also ideas emerging around the world of things like so-called stable coins, mm. which are cryptocurrencies stabilized by pegging to another asset class. So it's part of this broad technological shift. Um, as well as the decline of cash use. But Sid, how does a digital pound differ from a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? So if you take a Bitcoin, for example, that's an unbacked digital currency, uh, unbacked cryptocurrency, um, which which is sort of highly volatile. Um, A central bank digital currency, the digital pound, will be closer in essence to something like a stable coin, although it will be backed by the full weight of the Bank of England. I suppose the key difference between what you have now and in, in terms of money you have in your, your wallet um, in a bank account and a digital pound um, is that it'll run on a ledger um, owned by the Bank of England. So they would sort of be the final um, sort of end authority there rather than taking it through your traditional commercial bank uh, necessarily. Okay, so that will remain the same. But how would a digital pound be stored and accessed by someone like me? How, how would the users actually access it and use it? So you wouldn't, necessarily, you wouldn't actually deal with the Bank of England in this case. It would actually be through wallet providers who might be banks. But I, I think the suggestion is there might also be new companies or, or sort of fintechs 
or, or tech companies who kind of provide that middle layer. And that's, they would create the wallets which you would um, engage with and they would do all the, you know, your customer anti-money laundering checks and so on there. So that's how you'd have access to the cash. So is it kind of like a debit card affair? Um, it, it's not quite like a debit card. I suppose there are, there are similar, it's probably more similar to an e-money wallet in some ways to, that, that, that's offered by, um, I mean, companies like, um, well, in, in, in the UK, Revolut is an e-money registered company. So it's sort of more similar to that. And they would be sort of facilitating you accessing the central bank's money. Um, but, but you have to have that money there. The capital is in the account. It's not a credit card. They're not backing that, it that way. You actually have to have the physical money yourself. That's right, yes. You'd have to find some way of transferring your um, current money in a bank account into this um, central bank money. And Siddhar, how would the value of one digital pound compare to a physical pound? Would it be this, exactly the same at all times? Yes, yeah, it would just be identical. and it, it, that, That's um, sort of a key part of it. Okay, so there's one big fly in the ointment as I see it so far. Um, and I'm sure there's greater minds than mine uh, looking at this. But surely if the access to um, all of your funds is available online, it might make the potential for a run on a bank to be something that they can't control if someone can just access their funds and take it out online. Is that is that a kind of big concern as part of this or is that something they're looking at? Yes, yeah, absolutely. That is something which has, has long been a concern about central bank digital currencies. And, and the proposal at the moment is to limit the amount you can keep in a central bank digital currency. So the individual limit at the moment is between 10,000 and 20,000. Um, that is being to limit that risk of a, of a run or, or more generally of people moving from holding the majority of their cash in your your mainstream banks to the central bank. Mm. And what about other, um, has there any kind of evaluation been done of the wider sense of cash circulating? Have you seen any kind of similar statistics that are benchmarked around Europe, either member states or in a European one? I'm sure it's the same phenomena that everybody is kind of facing at the moment, that withdrawal of cash and more and more people moving online. Yeah, I think it actually it's, it's really fascinating comparisons because you have, um, I mean, some places like um, the Netherlands where they've really moved um, to, to cashless, largely cashless society, or uh, Sweden where there's an app called Swish, which is was set up by the, the major banks, and it's sort of a interbank digital payment system which outpaced cash um, a few years ago, I believe. Mm. And then you have countries like Spain and Italy. Um, and I think France as well, where you still see cash uh, use is is still quite um, quite prevalent for a lot of people, um, but declining as a result of generational shifts. But also, COVID had a big part in that. Um, mm. But but one interesting trend that that did appear, at least I've seen this data from last year, was in the UK an increasing number of people were using cash, not sort of a, the level that we saw pre-pandemic. But because people were using it for budgeting purposes, uh, we saw an increase in the amount of cash being withdrawn. Um, so you just spend it until um, until uh, until it was all gone, as opposed to using a card where you may not have the same sense of control. Mm. And obviously, you mentioned COVID there. That's had a huge um, a huge implication for the way that we do our business. Do you think if COVID hadn't come along, that the Bank of England and the UK government wouldn't be as far along as they are now at looking at something like this, or was it ever mooted before? Uh, has this accelerated all their plans? That's a pretty good question. I think it, I think it has accelerated the plans because, as you say, the cash decline 
and also because that's a global phenomenon and the movement towards digital payment methods and governments' efforts to deal with private um, initiatives in this regard or other governments in this regard. Um, I think COVID has certainly been a, um, an accelerant to, to, to the shift. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and I'm talking to Siddharth Ben Kadaram Krishnan uh, from the Financial Times. And we're talking about how the UK might introduce a digital pound, how it would operate and what it would mean for cash. So let's look at that, what this might mean for cash uh, in the longer term. Do you think that there's any kind of uh, notion here that we could be moving towards societies which uh, see physical currencies ruled uh, or phased out completely? So the government has uh, mandated that they want to keep the future of um, a long-term future for cash infrastructure, so access to cash. Um, and there are various initiatives between banks to provide these bank hubs where bank branches are closing. But I do think we are moving in, in many ways towards a, a society where even if you can access cash, there's a question whether you can spend it. A lot mm. of places which went cashless um, chains, but also smaller establishments in the pandemic, um, I, I certainly notice a lot of places where you can't spend cash there or where all the tills even in supermarkets, which are nominally all cash accepting, um, are only take contactless or, or Apple Pay or, or Google Pay. So I think we are moving in that direction, um, not as a result of government policy, but just because for a lot of businesses, this is what's been easier and cash costs more in some ways than um than the cost of, of cards. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly having that debate here in Ireland in many towns and villages across Ireland. There's a lot of people who are just accepting cash only in the tax or card only or electronic only. The same in some of the taxi providers. Um, is there an element of this, though, where we're kind of, you know, uh, distancing again a more marginalised group in society? Maybe, say, the elderly who don't have access to to electronic uh, payments in the same way that younger people would. Is there any of that being discussed in the context of this or does this even feature? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there is, I, I think, those who are sort of fighting for cash are concerned about the elderly, but also you find in areas with higher deprivation, cash use is higher because, um, what I was mentioning earlier, around people mm. using cash for budgeting purposes. So I think these discussions are ongoing. Um, I, I know that there's some interesting um, legislation in, in the US and some states. I think, I think New York's one of them where stores are mandated to require, uh, it's mandated to, uh, to, to accept um cash purchases, um, it's at some bricks and brick and mortar um, retailers. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think from my understanding that's anywhere near the agenda uh, in the UK or in fact in any other country from, from my understanding at the moment. But I think we are um, having discussions, growing discussions around the importance of cash for people who are um, really at risk of being left out of society in key ways. So Dara, I might finish up with this one. Um, you know, we're all moving online. There's a lot of it happening already. I'm, I'm struggling to see what's the point of introducing uh, a digital currency. Has this got anything to do with Brexit and independence in the UK? What's the, what's the point if there's no obvious, you know, advantage over what's already happening in the electronics payments services side? So that's, I mean, the government sort of um, has accepted that or, or sort of made the point themselves that you're not going to fundamentally see this dramatic shift that you might see in, in, in a country where it was primarily cash based. The idea at the moment is that it'll help stop the, the system from sort of fragmenting between different payment um, sort of walled gardens, essentially, where you could pay with, say, one provider, but you couldn't transfer those funds over. 
Um, and the hope is that a digital currency essentially would smooth that over, um, but also help with, um, you know, sort of potentially with payments in the future. It, it, it is a long-term vision, um, but it is also um, rooted in the fact that you are seeing the EU, the US and, and other countries around the world developing these technologies and sort of a keenness not to be left behind. Yeah, well, I'm certain that there's a, a long way to go on this. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on it from here. But for now, uh, thank you very much for giving your insights into that. That was Siddhar Venkataram Krishnan from the Financial Times. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Next up, the creation of four new government departments in the UK promises improved public services, better paid jobs and much, much more. Is it something we should be looking at here in Ireland? We'll discuss it all after this short break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, in an effort to reassert his authority after a very shaky first 100 days in office, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak recently unveiled four new government departments. It got us thinking here about the mechanics of, of an initiative like that and whether those type of changes are actually motivated by policy or politics. So joining me now to discuss are Mark Collinson, who's Teaching Associate in Political History at Bangor University and Frank Fitzgerald from the Department of of politics and public administration at the University of Limerick. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome to Taking Stock. Hello. Now, Mark, I might start off with you, please. Um, and I want to talk about that reset that Rishi Sunak did. Um, what were the big changes that he made in terms of the government departments and how were they received there? So the big changes, um, and there were sort of three or four big ones, but fundamentally what was previously three ministries became four um, the priority was creating a sort of new government department, predominantly um, looking at ones, uh, looking at science and technology, which is a long-term sort of habit of British governments to create ministries looking in that direction. Mm. And I saw that um, some of the coverage there was sort of suggesting that this whole thing might be actually about the election that uh, is pending. Um, when do we anticipate there will be an election in the UK? And do you think it's really part of that? I'm talking really about a tweet I saw from some Labour person who said, thanks very much, Rishi, for doing the reorganisation. We're delighted that we'll take the, up the reins when we come in. So how much of this is about the impending um, uh, general election? I think it's very much about a general election. It's very much probably trying to take the Conservative Party, which has obviously been in office for 13 years, trying to refresh um, what the government stands for, refresh its message, make it relevant, make it sound modern, as you said, Labour have seemingly started to sort of be, sort of gain a bit of momentum. And it's very much probably an attempt to take on ideas of technology. Even the uh, sort of ministry that looks at the culture, media and sport has been very much focused at ec- economics and at jobs. So I think there's very much a practical attempt to refocus um, what the government is trying to do and achieve sort of what Rishi Sunak wants to do moving forward towards the next election. Mm. Francis, we'll stay in the present for the moment and I'll bring you in here and we'll talk a little bit about Ireland because we've also seen some calls for standalone ministries. Um, I'm thinking in particular of um, the calls for a, a particular minister to deal with immigration and the accommodation crisis that is is currently ongoing in relation to that. Also, we've had calls for a standalone ministry for energy. Do you think that the government might have missed a trick here in Ireland in their recent changeover? They could have actually had a big refresh. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a a very interesting question because over the last 25 years or so, 
country organizations have become kind of more of a frequent tendency over the decades in general that has been the tendency but certainly in the 25 years up to now that that has become kind of much larger in the, in the number of your organizations i think it depends really it's going to be certainly for integration anyway it's going to be a long it's going to be kind of a continuing issue irrespective of whether integration is a standalone ministry or whether it's where it is currently or whether it's kind of subsumed back into another department like justice where the integration functions were previously so it just depends really on a policy level it depends on capacity changes so mm. it depends ultimately what kind of capacity increases you're seeing which is something we, we really have a lot less data on than perhaps we would like so it's really it depends on what angle the government would be looking at it from mm. I think that just moving away from the present situations and talking about this in a broader sense. Um, and Mark, I, I want to bring you in this about the principle of a change like this, the reconfiguration of a government department. Is it about responding to uh, what changes are required in policy or is it about responding to what's happening in the news cycle historically, what has been the case? Yeah, I think there is a lot historically when you're looking at this process. Often it's responding to what is deemed a priority at the moment. You know, this isn't the first time Britain has had a new standalone Department of Energy. Gone Brown tried to bring one sort of together in 2007, to, and it's sort of remained in power during the coalition existence during the coalition years. Um, and in the 1970s, in response to the oil crisis, there was a Department of Energy as well. So often these things can be sort of reacting to wider issues. They can also as well be done to sort of balance out sort of people within the cabinet. One of the departments that's been got rid of this time has been the Department for International Trade. Trade has periodically been separated from industry, then brought back in-house at different points. It can be for reasons of sort of political party management, but it can also be um, genuinely because they feel that the issues need to be dealt with separately altogether. So it can, it can change for a number of reasons. And when in the cycle does it happen? Because it's kind of difficult to make these big type of changes if you're working on a programme for government that's in a five-year cycle or if you're in a coalition agreement. So do you see these type of changes happening when there's changeovers in, in governments rather than, you know, mid-cycle generally? It, it can it can very much depend. Um, it can be, as you say, in coalition governments, but also this has happened within parties when there's been big disagreements, for example, of Brexit, um, the departments were split up for different reasons in the 1970s. It was split up to take, um, bring people in from different parts of the, the Labour Party, for example, or the Conservative Party. So it can be done for sort of that issue of party management as well to create a unified cabinet representing the whole party, which might be what Rishi Sunak is hoping to achieve, bringing more people in, bringing more voices. Mm. into cabinet. Frank, I might just bring you back in here. It's quite a complex thing, isn't it, kind of doing this type of reconfiguration. What are the steps that are involved in setting up a new government depart department and who is ultimately responsible for overseeing this process? Is it the politicians or is it the permanent government and the civil service? Very good question. So I suppose there are essentially three aspects to that. There's the kind of process that the legal process and the regulatory process they have to undergo to, to actually undertake those reorganizations here, the, the actors involved, and then the kind of nature of what's happening. On a legal level, and I, I think it's Mark would know more about this than I would, but on a legal level, both here and in the UK, it's very much a legalistic process. So mm. essentially, departments are established here under the Ministers and Secretaries Act 1924. The Amendment Act of 1939 kind of allowed ministers to amend their departments and allowed the, the Cabinet and the Taoiseach to do this. So essentially, to order, this essentially is done under 
authorising primary legislation via secondary orders, ministerial orders, under the 39 Act. So essentially that makes it much easier, but it's quite structured. Mm. On level who handles it, the decisions tend to be made by party leaders. So if you look at the 2020 programme for government, it states clearly that it's it, it's something that's within the prerogative of the party leaders, but they don't actually set out the changes they intend to make. The changes are actually set out then in the investors' speeches. So when Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach again in November, he set out, for example, the creation of the Child Poverty Unit and the change of name in the Department of Public Dispensary Reform. So that's set into that process. In terms of actually handling the process then, the main kind of conduit for actually carrying it out legally and administratively are the civil servants, the departments involved, and the overseer or coordinator of that is the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. So the answer is essentially a mix. Mm. And it's a very structured process. On the other point as well, as far as new departments, there aren't many that are kind of wholly new in the sense that much of it involves transfers. So if you look at even, even the actual orders that are given for this, a lot of the, the policy portfolios already exist. So they're being transferred from one department into another. An example of that is actually ironically energy. So right now we don't have an energy department. But those functions within that portfolio are hand, handled within the Department of the Environment and Climate, excuse me, Climate Action by Eamon Ryan. Mm. So, even, for example, the, the recent oil emergency contingency bill, that was handled by the Department of the Environment, but specifically one would expect by energy units within that department. So that, that's a reflection of capacity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and I'm talking to Mark Collinson, who's teaching associate in political history at Bangor University and also Frank Fitzgerald from the Department of Politics and Public Administration, the University of Limerick. That's an interesting point there that Frank made, Mark. Um, Essentially, this is a political decision that is made, but ultimately it will be carried out by civil servants. Um, And, you know, I've worked in a lot of government departments and, you know, you could say that civil servants don't really like change that much. So you see this initiative coming from political masters. What are they responding to? Is it the zeitgeist? Is it like trying to speak to their next electoral cycle? And ultimately, um, have you looked at this and said, actually, you know, it, it actually does benefit policy projection at the end of the day? Or is this... Is this metric or measured in any way once those big changes are made? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here and how it affects civil servants, as you said. I think one of the big things about um, when they're doing these sort of these changes is that actually it can have negative effects as well as positives. Yes, it can bring people together. Yes, it can reinforce priorities, but it can also move civil servants around change relationships it can also cost money sometimes it can be a very expensive rebranding exercise to some extent and often and sometimes you have situations where departments are historically go through cycles of being merged together and taken away i mean i suppose it depends how government has changed over the decades perhaps now government is more joined up because of technology being more joined up how we meet and interact with each but historically when we're talking in terms of <clears throat> sort of things being written down on paper um, I think that, that that probably was a time where this could create more chaos when archives have been shifted around to sort of deal with historical archives. And you see that the amount of paper produced, the amount, of, and that's the only from record keeping. So I think it perhaps historically had more of a drastic impact than it does perhaps today in sort of a more networked way of working. 
Yeah, Frank, Mark raises a point there about staffing and that's obviously a huge concern when you're making any changes like this. But it was also that geographical decentralisation from the centre that we're constantly talking about. Is physical location less of an issue now that we're more of us working remotely? And are we reaching a sort of virtual decentralisation where there's endless possibilities about what you can do with government departments now in a way that we couldn't have in the past? Yeah, I suppose so, in, in that there's more kind of flexibility to it. But I suppose problems are, just as they always were, somewhat intractable. And I suppose the big issue we have is, is to kind of, the, the kind of name level folks and, and the, the transfer portfolio functions and the main way we look at these issues. But one aspect we kind of have less of an understanding of is how, firstly, two things really. One is, is how that changes in capacity. So do you have more specialist expertise after reorganization put into an area? So, for example, if a department of, say, department of children becomes children and youth affairs, do you have more youth affairs expertise? Mm. Do you see increases in the number of staff in that area post reorganization? Do you see increased funding? So uh, increased kind of budgetary input. And then on the output side of it, then we also don't know quite as much as we, we should or we need to, I think, in terms of the, the output changes. So if you see a department of, say, foreign affairs and trade going to foreign affairs, do you see a different, now probably a terrible example because it's, it's foreign affairs, but do you see a difference in the, the types of legislation, the policy areas that they're dealing with being published? So do you see these output differences? And we don't know that. And that's kind of a reflection of that with integration today. So integration as portfolio, where it is now in the Department of Children, those functions were previously nestled in the Department of Justice. So they're pre-existing areas with pre-existing staff and, and units and specialties that are moved over into the new department. But whether additional capacity was created by kind of ascending it or promoting it to name level isn't clear. Mm. And that, that's the kind of challenge there, really, to assess that. One of the things I was doing when, when I was preparing for this was look at the names of various government departments and how they differ here in Ireland from the UK. I've got to say, Mark, you, you pick much more, as what's, what's the word, um, exciting names now, the new net zero department cleverly taking in the energy portfolio, but also kind of projecting that transitional um, desire to kind of move towards low carbon energy. But at the same time, that standalone energy department also levelling up the name of a department, perhaps the most overtly politicised name of a department I've ever seen. We're not quite so sophisticated here, but the name is important, isn't it, in marketing this as a rebrand and a change? Yeah, I think that is a really interesting. The levelling up one is a, is a fantastic, and it's obviously not the first one. Obviously, we had a department for sort of exiting the European Union a few years ago, but this, this tends to be sort of much more of a specific recent trend. But also, historically, there was a Ministry of Technology in the 1960s, which was very much designed to harness the, that sense of Harold Wilson's speech about, a minute, you know, like a white heat of revolution. So th- there is form for doing it, but I think it, it's very much a post-war innovation. Um, it's very much this attempt to create sort of equal divisions of government focused on specific issues. And the problem with that, of course, Mitch perhaps is maybe different, I don't know, um, to Ireland, is that maybe with, with the British system, they sort of are quite transient. These sort of departments only last as long as that issue is the key issue that government are talking about. Mm. I think that could be another weakness to the approach. Absolutely, yeah. We might be a little bit more conservative here, Frank. Final word to you on that. Would you agree we're a little bit more conservative in our changes? I'm old enough to remember the Post and Telegraph Department. You can't imagine that happening now. 
Yeah, I, I think there's probably a closer relationship, perhaps, I was kind of looking at that and thinking of that too, to the functions being carried out. So obviously, now, again, obviously, America know a lot more about this than I would, just to kind of contrast with the UK, you know, net, net zero or levelling up and all these things, they're they're fairly kind of euphemistic, kind of, they're, they're very difficult to define clearly, whereas here, they're, they're very much specific functions, and they're normally functions already being carried out, so that there's less of a kind of creativity with the names, Mm. And they more relate to the function that they're carrying out. So integration, as I say, already existed, but it's being carried out of one department into another and ascended to name level. So the two interrelate. You have a function and then you have a name, and the name tends to reflect the function more clearly here, mm. I would say. I have to say, ambiguity is always the friend of the politician. Uh, we could do Indeed. another show about that, perhaps. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Mark Collinson, who's teaching associate in political history at Bangor University and also Frank Fitzgerald from the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Limerick. Gentlemen, thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. Coming up after the break, the past year has seen the United States and many of its allies slap massive levies and sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. We'll discuss the level of their success after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, a year on from the start of war in Ukraine and despite sanctions that were considered unprecedented in terms of their scope, speed and coordination, Russia's economy is still functioning and the Kremlin is still waging war against Ukraine. That's led to some questions about whether the sanctions are actually effective. To discuss all this, I'm joined now by Jackie Northam, who's foreign affairs correspondent for NPR News. Jackie, thank you for joining us here on Taking Stock. Thanks for having me. Now, Jackie, before we get into the sanctions, um, I just want to get a little bit of context here. Two very different economies going into this war. Ukraine dealing with lots and lots of legacy issues when it came to their economy. How is the Russian economy faring pre-war? Uh, pre-war, it was, well, it's certainly faring uh, better than it is now. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a export-driven economy. Oil and gas, uh, natural gas are the two cash cows, if you like, the money makers. For the country, and there's there's plenty of um, you know other exports that they have as well, natural resources and that. But the other thing too is is that there was a lot of potential for the future, and I'll just give you one example. Um, they were looking towards the Arctic mm. for oil exploration, and again, oil is really their big money maker here. And so you had a lot of Western um, companies coming in. You had Western expertise and skill. Uh, you know, investment, all sort of geared towards us. And, um, you know, it was looking hopeful. Putin was, again, this was supposed to be the future up there. That's all gone now Mm. um, with the war. You know, uh, first of all, you have sanctions. So American companies aren't allowed to be there or individuals, but other Western companies have pulled out now, along with the skill, along with the, you know, the investment, um, the technology as well. It's all gone. So it was doing much better than it is now, you know, as part of the G20. Um, we had, uh, or the um, the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, Wally Adeyemo, was saying, now, uh, you know, it was part of the G20, now Russia is looking more like, you know, along the likes of Venezuela or Iran, which is, you know, kind of an exaggeration, mm. but, 
you get the idea. I do. Uh, that's an interesting point. We do forget about the ambition that it had in that energy mm-hmm. area. And of course, energy is so hugely important. And we'll come back to that later. And um, just mm-hmm. moving to the, the sanctions, um, before we get into the technical assessment of the sanctions, the sanctions themselves became an important part of portraying the alliances by countries who were opposed to the war. So how did it all start and what were the first sanctions uh, introduced? Uh, well, actually, there was a flood of sanctions that were introduced right at the beginning, uh, within days after uh, the Ukraine war started, h- highly geared towards um, going after Russia's economy more than anything else. Although, you know, they, uh, the Western nations, um, you know, went after individuals. They went after, um, you know, some very close compatriots of Putin himself. But surely they went after going after sort of swaddle um, Russia's economy. And if you think about that, you know, there were companies, manufacturing companies. There were plenty of banks that they went after, very large banks. And that included the central bank. Mm. And right at the get-go, um, the Western nations, you know, were, were able to freeze about half of um, – Russia's sovereign wealth, $630 billion, which was a lot of money. And I don't think anybody thought that would even happen. And yet it did. The other thing I want to do say, you know, say when you were talking about how, uh, what were the first ones, what's really been unusual about this whole thing is, is that it has been a multilateral effort that has stuck. Mm. I mean, sometimes we kind of laugh here. We say the EU can't, you know, the member states can't agree on the time of day. <laughs> Somehow they've all agreed on this. It's stuck, stuck together, as well as other Western nations, U.S., Canada, Australia, and that type of thing. That's what's been really unusual, not just the breadth of these sanctions, but um, the cohesiveness of those um, implementing them. Yeah, and we can get stuck on what people are supplying in terms of artillery for the military and all that. But mm-hmm. in terms of showing intent, this intent, these sanctions was really the first part of them showing that togetherness um, uh, yeah. for sure and, and attacking the source, which is often the economy and business. You mentioned yeah. there the, the, the banking system. The Russians weren't entirely naive when it came to the possibility of sanctions happening. So... Had they put safeguards in place to make them sanction-proof on any of those sectors? Well, they thought they had. There was something called Fortress Russia, and um, that was something that Putin had come up with, with to just in this sort of situation. So the Western nations could not go after the whole lump sum. And, um, you know, a lot of people ridiculed that idea that that would actually work. But in fact, it... It did. I mean, one of the re- one of the things that really saved Russia and Putin by extension um, at the beginning, when all these sanctions, especially on the central bank, came rolling down, is, is that he has very good economists, and they were able um, to stitch this together, somehow hold this thing together. If you remember at the beginning, the ruble just nosedived, mm. and nobody thought that that was going to pull back. But because you're in sort of this autocratic regime, Putin. And his um, finance experts were able to stop this. They were able to stench this flow of ruble, rubles going out of the country and people leaving and that. So it really, yes, there were, there, were, there were supposed to be all these safeguards in place. And to a certain extent, it did work. Um, they were able to 
the economy didn't flatten as everybody suspected and thought it was going to look that way right at the beginning. Mm. And that's helped. The other thing that has helped, of course, is just the uh, price of oil and the price of natural gas. Uh, that helped certainly for the first year and not necessarily now, though. Absolutely. And the energy discussion um, became an important part of um, Europe and in particular um, Europe's addiction to Russian gas, its move away Mm. from nuclear and coal left us very exposed. Um, Mm -hmm. So how did that play out in the in the beginning Uh, and where are we at now vis-a-vis Russia's kind of stronghold over Europeans uh, energy supply? Did that work? Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about just a few minutes ago about how nobody expected that, um, you know, the Western nations would sanction the central bank. Nobody expected the uh, the developments that we've seen as far as it's come to energy. And I just want to think of, if you remember right at the beginning, Nord Stream 2, which was this major gas line going from Russia to Germany, which was due to open. It hadn't even opened yet. Kaput. You know, kaput. Mm. Uh, Germany just said, no, we're stopping that. Who would have thought that? <laughs> Who would have thought that Russia, which it makes a lot of money off natural gas, decided to turn off the natural gas flow for the most part um, to Europe, basically shutting off those revenues? Who would have thought that the European Union would say, we're banning all um, I- imports of seaborne crude oil from Russia, it, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's been based its economy on for so many years and on and on. And now refined products, it's banned that as well. Who would have ever thought that would have happened? I'm just uh, finishing up a story here looking at how all this has changed the uh, flow of energy in the world. And people, uh, analysts here in the U.S. are saying we haven't seen anything like this since the 1970 Arab, uh, Arab oil embargo, which really changed how... Um, you know, countries, uh, whether they were becoming too dependent on a certain region, in that case, the Middle East. So we're seeing Russia now, is, 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 it is losing so much revenue by not sending that oil to Europe. It's sending it to China and India, which are just consuming it at an unbelievable pace. But they're having to, you know, Russia's having to sell it at rock bottom prices. So we're seeing this. We're just seeing all, you know, Europe is now looking to the U.S. for natural gas. It's looking to the U.S. for oil. All these shifts are changing. So, you know, what started off as this war in Ukraine is is, is, is expanded, you know, well, well into the whole global energy market. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's 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 easy now to have this discussion now. But a year ago, I remember seeing those headlines about, you know, Putin will cut off the gas supply and somebody said to me that that's ridiculous it sounds like a James (laughs) Bond movie Mm. you know that's not going to happen but of course it did and Europe survived it but how did it affect the Russian economy and what was the impact there on them selling to other markets like China at at rock bottom rates? Well you know the price of oil price of natural gas was so high last year that um, Russia still made a profit there's Mm. there's no question Um, this year you're getting a different story. Um, in fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that the Russia's Ministry of Finance, you know, published um, data that showed that oil and natural gas revenues have fallen about 46%, almost by a half, which is huge. Um, and it's making it hard for the mm. Kremlin to replenish its military supplies, you know, from everything from tanks to ammunition because of those uh, that loss in revenues. What's really helped is this price cap, though, that actually the U.S. came up with. And no, again, nobody thought it was going to work, but it has. Um, you know, it's, it's 
Russian oil is very cheap now um, for any countries that still are buying it outside the EU, and they're allowed to buy it because it's under $60 a barrel. Um, yeah, so, you know, if, 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 if we're looking at Europe, though, you know, what's really helped Europe this year is, is, is it's terrible for climate change, is that it's been, it's been a warm winter. Mm. Uh, it's hard to say what's going to happen next year, mm. in part because we just don't know. If, if Russia takes oil off the market, then um, prices will go up. If China comes back full steam, its economy, things are going to change. So it, nothing is certain still at this point, but their economy, Russia's economy, is now starting to hurt a lot because of um, the drop in prices. And one of the other things that he might have done by accident, and we talked about that multilateralism and the intent and the sticking together and solidarity of Europe, he might have actually advanced the pace and accelerated the pace of uh, renewable energy and the transition might be happening much, much quicker by accident because of him. Yes. You know, that's, that's, you know, any analyst I've talked to over the past year, that's always been sort of the one bright light. But let's not forget that Germany's, you know, Germany and some others are, are, you know, coming back to coal. Hopefully that's just in the short term. Um, But yes, there is this, you know, because maybe lessons learned. They don't want to be in this position again, where you are going to be dependent on any one area of the world or any one country. And so what I understand is that that is what's happening is, is that there is this, um, you know, the, the need, uh, you know, towards more green energy has accelerated. You know, at the same time, though, you're looking at something like uh, Germany that's brought in three yeah. LNG terminals. Uh, and opening you know, up and, and, of, and reopening some of the nuclear plants again. Uh, yes. Yeah, indeed. So um, it's, 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 not, it's not a win-win so far. No, 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 no. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Jackie Northam, who's Foreign Affairs Correspondent for NPR News. And we're chatting about the sanctions um, against Russia. Just back to those sanctions, Jackie, um, you mentioned there that one of the things that they did also was to target individuals. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that worked and, and what we saw? Were people fleeing Russia because of it? Was there a mass exodus? Uh, what does the landscape there look like now for for people who were targeted, right? I, there is there is an, an exodus. Uh, definitely, any many people who can get out of Russia are, but there are others who want to stay and see this through. You know, I we we have a um, correspondent based in Moscow, and this is something that he covers very much. As far as what I've been looking at, um, there has been uh, this flood out the door of. Um, professionals, if you like, mm. you know, whether it's engineers or architects or mathematicians or academics, if they can get out, um, they will. The other individuals, which are always the colorful ones, of course, are the oligarchs, mm. <laughs> which, um, and uh, it really is hard to feel sorry for somebody with a, you know, 400 foot yacht or something like that, having to find a new place to park. And sorry, that's not nice. But anyway, um, you know, everybody thought that these were the, the people that they, um, that we're going to be able to push Putin into uh, rethinking what he's doing with this war and that type of thing. But unfortunately, that's not the case. They're not, they, they, he helped enrich them, but, um, you know, they really don't have any uh, bearing on his thinking. He has a coterie of like-minded people around him that think yeah, it, it, that it, they want to keep carrying it out. Yeah. It also exposed uh, 
a lot of uh, about a lot about where Russian money was, you know, and yeah. and uh, particularly London and the UK, you know, that came under the spotlight in ways that people didn't know before. I just want to turn to the corporates, uh, Jackie, for a second. What about international companies? Um, what what did they what what effect did they feel in in the manufacturing sector? Uh, did you see a big exodus of those companies, not just individuals? How does that landscape mm-hmm. look now? Yeah, it's the same thing that I was mentioning sort of with the Arctic oil thing as well. Yeah, there is a flood. First of all, uh, for U.S., they have to get out. There was no there was, there was no, no option, mm-hmm. right? Um, for Actually, let me just back up a little bit. There was the Yale um, University it's School of Management did this review, and this was a few months ago, but already at that point, uh, over a thousand international companies, you know, they either – idled their operations or they just pulled out of Russia completely. And again, this is, you know, it's it's a global economy that we live in. And so if you start losing that, if you start losing that investment, that expertise, you know, it it is going to hurt an economy. There is no question about it. The other thing that, you know, has been a trend here is, is that, um, even if for, even if, 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 if a company doesn't have to get out, it is getting out because there's such a stain now mm. dealing with um, with Russia completely. I'm thinking about these um, tankers that carry oil. Right from the get go, they've a lot of them have just sort of backed off completely because they don't want to go anywhere near something that where they're going to see themselves sanctioned. You know, the U.S. is really tough when it comes to secondary sanctions, going after a company for going after a country that it's sanctioned. And you know, you get sanctioned by the U.S., you are out of its financial market, and as we all know, the dollar is you know premier here. So, so there's been a lot of companies that have just decided anyway. To just get out because um, they can see where this is going, and it, of course, it is having an impact, and it's a, it's a short impact, but it's also the long term impact of what that does to an economy if you do lose all that international input. Mm. And Jackie, just a final word on this. I just want to get your assessment on whether you think that they have worked and had the desired effect that was intended at the outset, and just a little bit more about that deeper impact. Where is this all going for the Russian economy? Well, the Russian economy is going downhill. I mean, let's uh, sanctions take a long time mm. to kick in, and the longer uh, they they're out there, the more easy the you know to evade them. You know, there there are loopholes, there's everything else like that. And we're starting to see the U.S. trying to close some of those. So the country's going down, but it's you know it's still a big economy. It still has natural gas and it still has oil, so it's going to have some money, but it is not going to be this sort of thriving economy that we were seeing before the war. Mm. But you think that the sanctions have worked? I would say that the sanctions are having an, an impact and there's some debate about what really was the end game here. You know, was it to get Putin to change his ways and uh, stop the war in Ukraine or was it to throttle the economy and then in, 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 by extension stop the war? Mm. Um that has obviously that hasn't happened yet, um, and so they are having an impact, but um, I, I wouldn't say they've worked fully yet. No. Okay, well, Jackie, thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, your insights with us. That was really uh, helpful. That was Jackie Northam, who's Good. foreign affairs correspondent for NPR News. Jackie, thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast for us from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, we'll be catching up with the carry-ons of Sam Bankman-Fried. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com or I'm open on Twitter at StockNT. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.